For so very long, it's been... Go on, George. Tell how it's gonna be. But in the end, the commission only said... We figured it 17 different ways. And every time we figured it, it was no good. Because no matter how we figured it... But no matter how you figure it out, I still don't get as much as anybody else. Somebody don't like the way we figured it. So now, there's only one way to figure it. And that is every man for himself. When Black Friday comes, this is the end. It's the end of the world. It's the end of the world as we know it. Or is it now? As a new year hits, through it all, Beaver Nation moves ahead with resiliency and hope. Sun's up. Mm-hmm. Looks okay. The world survives into another day. And the way forward goes through, as it must, The Joe Beaver Show with John Warren and Mike Parker. A number of times I heard these guys' voices over and over and over. Still can't find it. Ah, can't find it? We can help. This here is 1240. 1240. It's always been 1240. My client says it's 1240. Yeah, plus 93.7 FM and streaming live at KEJOAM.com and on the KEJO app. It's the Joe Beaver Show. We are guest heavy today. That's good. And That's good. thus, less opportunities for open phones. Do have them right out of the gate if there's anything you'd like to jump in with. Good morning, everybody. In the Longview to Corvallis rain window, uh, we've been in it with the expectation of improvement, though, soon. Yeah. Is that true? Improvement for tomorrow and Friday. Saturday has gone from rain. During the game, to 50% chance of showers during the game. So that's good news. One of the notes in UCLA's release. <laughs> Last time, UCLA, and there's a, a phone call, and we'll take them. We'll take them early. I'll give you the guest lineup in a moment. But one of the notes in UCLA's release is, Last time UCLA played a game in the rain. <laughs> and surprisingly, I, I thought it would be... Every year you play a game somewhere in the rain a little bit, don't you? It says the last time UCLA played a game in the rain on the road was 2016 at Colorado. Seven years? Right. Colorado, I'm going to have to take a look at that. I wrote it down just because it was intriguing to me. The last time they played a game, a road game on the road. I mean, a road game on the road. Pardon my redundancy. The last time UCLA played a road game in the rain at Cal, 2016. They have not played a game in the road, on the road since they played in the rain at that's, Cal that's seven years crazy. ago. I, I, I thought, well, is that true? Evidently, it is. And the last time they had a home game that had any rain at the Rose Bowl, 11 years ago in 2012. <laughs> These are the notes that are put into the UCLA. Well, release. that's good stuff. I it mean, is, actually. <laughs> because if it rains Saturday during yeah, the game, yeah. well, if we, UCLA hasn't done this since <laughs> 2016 in Berkeley. Well, you hope it would throw them off. It would have to be a heavy, heavy yeah, rain I think to really so. throw them but off. But it tells me, again, that we almost overrate. Now, UCLA hasn't been here since 2015. They've been at Oregon, I believe, but... No rain, evidently. According to their PA announcer, uh, Don Essig, it never does rain down there. <laughs> but I've, I I don't think that's quite true because I've seen it and I've been in it. But 
Today's guest lineup features Tim Ewis coming up shortly to talk of Jack Velling and three touchdowns in one game for a tight end. Tim's career high was two in his senior year in really? one game. Oh. Well, I'm going to talk to him about, hey, did you get close to a third? Were you begging for a third? Tim Ewis to talk tight end play and help us preview not only the Beavers UCLA, but he X'd out yesterday, Twittered out, tweeted out, X'd out. Why is, you know, he just wanted answers, and I look forward to seeing if he got any, but he X'd out yesterday a question, why is youth football participation, yeah. uh, why, why do you feel less kids are playing football in the state of Oregon? And uh, what kind of responses he got, I don't know, but he asked the question. I actually uh, participated. Oh, you did? Okay. In that and chose, I can't remember what I chose. On I mean, one. he gave multiple choices. Yeah. I didn't get that yeah, far. I just saw a, the question. Fear of injury, community culture faded. That's what I chose. Lack of coaches and video games slash tech. You know what won? Out of uh, 292 votes. Okay. Um, video game culture. Lack. That was actually third place. Okay. 39% fear of injury. Yeah. 29%. Community culture faded, meaning they're just getting away from it. Mm -hmm. Moms are getting scared, whatever. Lack of coaches, 7%, but in third place, video games at 20, 25%, close to second. Okay. Timmy will join us to share why he asked the question, what he makes of the results, what he's hearing in his own world. But we do want to talk Beaver football with him, the tight end position in particular, his thoughts about the evolution of the Oregon State offense this year and what he's observed. So Tim Ewis will join us and also preview our gathering at the parking lot right across the street from his offices for the Joe Beaver Roadshow Friday. Tim Ewis, your local Edward Jones financial advisor serving the Corvallis community mm -hmm. and will be serving us free food, tickets, other things to give away come Friday. So we'll get a preview of that Roadshow and visit with Tim here in a few minutes. Big Jim Wilson, whose schedule is always tight. He's an educator in Vancouver, USA. He has a window today, though, and I look forward to his perspective. A little different slant and angle. The thing he does such a great job of, among many, but one thing in particular I always lean on, his study and evaluation of the opponent. So he can yeah. talk to us about J. Michael event or about UCLA's defense, or about... Dante Moore, or whatever else we yeah. want to find. Carson Steele, the now-featured running back. Yeah. What is it that UCLA and Chip Kelly are bringing to Corvallis on Saturday? And then at 12.05, a young man who, according to Jesse Soa's excellent article in the Gazette Times here recently, had a 7-inch growth spurt in about a year, going from a 6'2 guard. He's now listed in the Beavers roster, so it's even more than that. 6'2 yeah. to 6'9 in high school. He's now listed as a seven-footer, right. so he's still growing. Right. Gavin Mars. And Gavin, a young man that we look forward to talking to out of Ellensburg, Washington, will join us for a first conversation on the Joe Beaver Show at 12.05. The only other player I've ever heard that story of happening, and this I heard this 30 years ago, 40 years ago when I was in high school, A.C. Green. He played our high school, I think his freshman or sophomore year at 6'2 and was a guard. And then uh, we played him a couple of years later in the tournament. He was 6'9", or whatever he ended up being. 
So that's funny. I was just looking through uh, Twitter to find that mm-hmm. that Tim Ewis thread thread, and so I just the up that the last deal, like Softy Mahler is just getting pounded by by Cougar fans or or just general fans about him being so happy for Washington leaving and and uh, leaving Washington State and Oregon State in the lurch, and he's yeah. trying to say. I'm not happy about that, but I am happy about about our, about destination. our destination. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So he's going back and forth. But here's a quote that Softy put out because today Troy Dannon is announced as Washington's newest athletic director, and he's coming over from Tulane. So the uh, the press conference is happening today, and here's a quote from Troy Dannon. I mean, we all know this, but but it's just kind of a oh yeah, well that's right. He says, quote, I didn't have the money to make mistakes at the schools I've been at, so I don't make them. And the the example, the uh, the description is Troy Dannon with the media says his budget at Tulane, one fifth of what it is at Washington. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's uh, called a um, an upgrade for him. Absolute upgrade. And the salary, like the I'm quote. sure, will re- we will will do that. But it's a great quote. It's a good I quote. didn't have enough money to, <laughs> to make, make a mistake. mistake. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, I'm also glad. That it's him, and that what yeah. Scott Barnes said when he was Softy Mahler's number one guy, uh, <laughs> and others who said, "Hey, if you're going to go replace Jen Cohen, let it be Scott Barnes." And I'm glad that Troy Dannon, who's never made a mistake, is uh, the new AD at Washington. So, in our opening minutes today, in open phones, and we'll have more thereafter. After Gavin Mars, we'll have a half hour or so uh, to reflect on certain things. We'd love to hear from you now. And is this Tumwater already? That I feel bad for Dave, and I don't yet because he texted last night and just mm-hmm. said the Orioles after their amazing 100 win season, just like that. Yeah, done out in three. And I didn't see a minute. I didn't see a pitch in that series. So I'm relying on Dave to, and believing him. And sad to report, he said, "quote in a text to us." Adley had a dismal series on I think he hit, Dave, correct me, I think he hit 088. Well, it's still, it was one of the great stories. The athletic reports on Oriole baseball and their rise yeah. it was one of the great stories. And now, like that. Hey, two years ago, they were over. one of the worst teams in baseball. So Dave's had a little time to reflect on getting swept and Adley not having a a grand performance in the postseason. I'm not sure what provokes your call, Dave. It's always good to hear from you what's on your mind. Well, let me just address that uh, first, uh, gentlemen. Uh, uh, the Major League Baseball playoffs have become a Major League version of March Madness, the new format. And, uh, you know, you got to live and die with it. Uh, the Orioles, you know, I hate to say it, but I think it's true. They're a young team. I think the spot was a little... Big for them. I mean, as I texted to you guys, I haven't wanted the Orioles to have a deep run into the playoffs uh, uh, because of the obvious affinity and association with Adley and my uh, mutual fandom with Oregon State and the Orioles since 1966. After I sent that, Mike, I realized that might have picked out a scab, which was unintentional. But, uh, yeah, the... uh, Major League Baseball playoffs have become uh, March Madness, and uh, you gotta, they got to look at that format. Um, and it, uh, I think they need to add more teams, and everyone play. they they got to seed the format. they got to do what the NBA does. they got to do what the NFL does. Reseed the format. And the only way you can do that 
is to add two more teams, which Manfred wanted to, but the union was against. I think if the Dodgers and Braves don't make it, I see you will see a change in format. Everyone plays with a seated format right out of the gate, but that's not my reason. For okay. And I know, and I know you've got uh, uh, some guests coming up, so let me just go through in quick order my my main points. I think we got the most interesting college game day in history coming up this Saturday, and it's, uh, it's, there's a website called Awful Announcing, which uh, which analyzes the broadcast media. There's just one line of uh, the elephant in the room. Uh, will ESPN talk about? Well, here's the one line. How can ESPN talk about the death of the Pac-12 when they have a when they are the ones holding a dagger? Mm-hmm. And so that'll be interesting. And I'm, I'm glad to hear Softy's getting roasted. And as I said earlier, my reports are there'll be 500 to a thousand Cougar fans with flags at the Red Plaza, whatever they call it up there, Saturday. Switching to college basketball and specifically Tara Vanderveer. When all this college realignment came out, one of my first comments was, I'm tired of hearing from the the, uh, the Paul Feinbaums and the Dennis Dodds and the McAfee's how sorry they are about what's happened to the Pac-12 conference. Well, I've reached the same point with conference coaches like Tara Vanderveel and Kyle De- uh, Whittingham uh, bemoaning the, 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 the demise of the conference. Don it all, these people could read the media they knew which way the wind was blowing. What did they do with their athletic departments to preempt us? And if there's one figure in Pac-12 athletics that has swack, it's Tara Vandiver. She could have preempted this. And what is particularly tragic, Oregon State and Washington State would have been able to easily rebuild the Pac-4 if those two schools mm-hmm. had stayed in in line with Oregon State and Washington State. So I'm tired of hearing conference coaches, especially Tara Vandiver, who was the one coach. Whittingham's another. They could have forestalled this if they had just stood their ground, if they had been as forceful in their opinion about things as the stupid coach at the University of Washington was about wanting to have all of his games on linear TV. So that's point two. That thirdly, and lastly, the question's been come up, what, did Al, what role did Oliver Luck play in all of this? Now, I think we now know he was the source of the information that the NCAA bylaws allow a two-team, or an eight, a seven-team or less conference to have the two-year grace period. That was Oliver Luck's role. He earned his money. It's, it's astonishing that you have all these bright people in all these athletic departments that didn't have to hire a consultant. Fine. They paid someone to tell them what time it is. But Oliver Luck is the person who did that. Lastly, regarding UCLA playing in the rain, much like I have argued that Oregon and Washington have traded 10 win season floors, 10 win season floors to an eight or nine winning game of stealing by going to the, uh, to the Big Ten. SC and UCLA have, have, have uh, warm-weather schools, the personification of warm-weather schools. They are now going to a bad-weather conference, having given up one game a year in the Bay Area, one game a year at a minimum in, the, in Arizona, one game a year either in the Great Basin or the semi-arid plains referring mm-hmm. to Utah and Colorado. Mm-hmm. So 
Get used to the bad weather, guys. You're going to see a lot of it in your near-term future. Dave, good talking to you. We we don't have time to reflect, but we appreciate the input. We've got Tim Ewis to talk some Beaver UCLA football and other things. Big Jim Wilson, Gavin Marr, so it's a big show. We appreciate the correspondence as always. Thank you, Dave. Let's take a break. We'll come back with former Oregon State tight end, now and former NFL tight end. I look forward to talking to him specifically about one Jack Vellin catching three in one game. The stats world only goes back to 1996, so that's why Hank's notes. Uh, Jack Vellin, first tight end since at least 1996 to catch three touchdowns for the Beavers in one game. Apparently, box scores and stats do not go deeper than that. So if there was a tight end in another era that caught four in a game or or three in a game or whatever, apparently we don't know that. At least sure? yeah, that well, that's yes, that's what Hank Hager insists that the stats in terms of position breakdown might you might say receptions Jones four, yeah, but it doesn't specify what position that player was unless you knew that Jones <laughs> unless was a you tight knew end. right. So whatever the tight end was in 1985. You'd have to look at that and go tally it individually rather than right. with the computer. Yeah. So That's unbelievable. Since at least 96, Velling with three, Tim Ewis' career high with the Beavers, two against Stanford in 2003. Tim joins us next on Joe Radio. The Joe Beaver Show continues this Friday with the weather we believe improving. Yeah, it'll be dry. Is going to be perfect for our gathering Tim Ewis, your local Edward Jones financial advisor, serving the Corvallis, the Mid-Valley area. and uh, This after his distinguished career with the Beavers and the National Football League and a high achiever in so many ways, uh, we appreciate his support through the years of the Joe Beaver Show, which includes hosting us for the Roadshow Friday. We've got a lot to talk to Tim about, and we'll double down and talk to him again come Friday more about the the business aspects and how life is going at Edward Jones, our host for Tim, but we'll be in the parking lot across the street from his office downtown, just a stone's throw from the river, fairly near the skate park. Great location. We had a wonderful time last year. We're looking forward to the encore this Friday, and Tim will be hosting us. Tim, thanks for joining us on the Joe Beaver Show. Let's start with that. With the weather improving and all of that, I mean, whatever the weather is, what are you rolling out on Friday? What can Beaver Nation coming out to the roadshow look forward to? Yeah, we should set the tents up just like we did last year. My kids are off of school that day, so they kind of take that role in the morning. We'll have some tables and chairs to sit at, and then my dad and I will probably be working the barbecue, and, and uh, we'll have some burgers for everybody, some soft drinks, and uh, to to be compliant with the city, I think the, the goal is we have to have everybody sign in mm-hmm. um, to, to be able to eat, but that's really the main thing um, just for, for legality and for client's sake and and just enjoy some time with, uh, with Beaver Nation and hanging out and talking football and hopefully, you know, hanging out on a nice fall day in Corvallis, seeing the leaves change in downtown and, and all those things we love. Tim, I thought, and we look forward to that, 11 to 1 on Friday. And we'll talk to you more about business and other things in your role as an Edward Jones financial advisor here. You're hosting us Friday. We look forward to that. As Jack Velling caught his third touchdown pass in Berkeley, I thought of you because I thought I remembered a two-touchdown game you had. I went back and confirmed in your senior year, you had seven touchdowns on the year. Jack Velling's up to five. 
Stats for tight ends don't go back any further than 1996, according to Hank Hager. But uh, the three-touchdown game for Jack, the most touchdowns for a tight end since at least 96. You had two in one game against Stanford, seven overall, but three for anybody, particularly tight ends, a big deal. What were your thoughts as you watched that unfold? I was loving it. I thought he might get a fourth yeah. in there at the end. That was kind of what we were cheering for. Um, obviously, he's he's a really good receiving target for the Beavers with eight career touchdowns. And, and when you look at it, 13 catches this year and five touchdowns, almost 40% of the time that he touches the ball, he scores. And that's a, that's a huge offensive weapon. Um, in three, tight, three touchdowns in a game, Mike, I, I think I've only been – part of one game where that happened for a, a tight end. And that was with Mark Campbell when we were playing the Rams. I want to say in 2004, he had three touchdowns in a game um, when I was in Buffalo. And that's just unheard of. Uh, but it also shows the direction that I'll say college has kind of followed based on what's happened in the last few years in the NFL with, with tight ends really like, Gronkowski and mm-hmm. Kelsey and Kettle and and that type where they're really much faster than in my era and very good hands and, and really able to stretch the field and, and create some significant mismatches. So I think, you know, John and the offensive staff put them in really good positions to, to make those catches, but ultimately he, he's got the intangibles. He's fast and he's got great hands. Is it harder for them to do it now than it did back in the day? It seemed like seems like there's always a spot for the tight end to be go to go over the middle and, and do some damage. Yeah, it's a good question, John. There, there's always been a spot for the tight end to go over the middle and do some damage, but also get damaged. <laughs> and, and now, I, I feel like with the the matchups that they're able to create, so much more of the game is is man one on one a lot less zone uh, maybe than we've seen in the past. Um, even more, a lot of cover zero, it feels like at times. And to create the mismatches, and if it is zone, to create confusion with what they're doing with the tight end um, has really worked out. And I know he's got some kind of the high angle game. He's got some, some crossers with that. Um, I, I feel like half the time when he's in the end zone, he's just wide open. And we used to joke around with that with like Tony Gonzalez and, um, and Antonio Gates. Like these guys catch eight or nine balls a game. And when I would have to be them on scout team, I would catch eight or nine balls in practice. <laughs> and, and you're just sitting there saying like, why can't we have this in our offense? Mm-hmm. You know? And, and, and Jack gets that. He, he gets the benefit of having those plays in the offense and the, and the team trusting him. And, and they have to pick what they're going to take away. And right now, the, most of the opposing defenses are going to try to stop our run, which gives him a great opportunity. My opportunity was very different. They were trying to stop our run with Steven Jackson, but there were so many hot routes. Now they shift protections. They're not throwing hot as much. So he's catching those balls further downfield. I mean, I think you know he's got over a 10-yard average. Last year's almost 20-yard average they're catching those balls further downfield instead of catching the ball three yards past the line of scrimmage on, on kind of more of a hot route. 
Why? It's different. The game has changed. How? Why isn't there more hot routes if you have Damian Martinez and the running game between the tackles, not a spread off offense, that is so damaging? Wouldn't it be the same as the era with Steven Jackson? Well, that's what I was getting at. I think there was a lot more zone then, and I haven't broken down the film completely, but when, when they're dropping back into – when I was playing, it was so prevalent that they were running like four strong or four weak blitzes and, and dropping into like a cover three. And there's just natural holes for a tight end or a slot to catch a ball three or four yards downfield. And, and you might rumble for a few. Every once in a while, you see that happen. I think with Kenny Farley, it happened maybe against, uh, gosh, I want to say it was Arizona State, where you, you catch a slant and you, you're in a hole, and all of a sudden you're at full speed and, and, and you take it to the house. Uh, Larry Fitzgerald did that in the Super Bowl. Those are more rare, uh, I want to say, today. I, I think you just see less of the four strong, and if, if somebody or four-week blitz, and if somebody wants the blitz, they just end up playing man behind it, and, and then it, it's a one-on-one, and that's a tough matchup with a guy like Jack being guarded by a linebacker. Uh, because if they're going to stop the run, they're probably committed to having bigger bodies in there. So they might, they might have a bigger free safety or they might have a bigger linebacker in there guarding him one-on-one. And, and I would take a guy like him any day in a one-on-one, uh, you know, matchup. And, and that wasn't necessarily what I was great at. I was better at finding that hole in the mm-hmm. zone and they're connecting with me or John connecting with me because they were trying to stop Ken or, or uh, Steve. And, and that's, Again, it's just how the game has shifted a little bit. And, and it shows the athletes on defense and offense and, and how they've adapted as well. And the position has really changed. Tim Ulis, our guest on the Joe Beaver Show, particularly getting back to Saturday. First of all, maybe you can comment on both. DJ Uyungle rolling five touchdowns. Aiden Childs threw one to Silas Bolden on a beautiful protected play. The three touchdowns to Velly, and I'm just wondering, the other streak to Josiah, that was a big-time play, too. But the three touchdowns to Velly in particular, all short, all in the red zone. Tim, the Beavers are 22 for 22 in the red zone with 20 touchdowns. That's not easy to do, but with those kinds of weapons, do you can't, this is why they're able to, because they got a guy like Velling down there? Yeah, when you have that size and the length that he has, and again, creating the, the one-on-one matchups off of play action or off of um, just throwing a ball that he can go up and get, and again, having to cover speed on the outside, and maybe they're more, you know, committing something larger to to the outside. Also, you know, Riley Sharp also has a touchdown mm-hmm. down there, and so again, it's it's I think pretty matchup driven, uh, but. To be perfect in the red zone is is incredibly impressive. Uh, you know that teams just don't do that, and right. that shows that the, the level that the Beavers are playing at and what the decision making in the red zone is like at quarterback as well. And I, you know, I know my dad kind of got on me. He's like, "Oh, you got to talk better about our quarterback." <laughs> when when I said, you know, he just needs to be serviceable. But I guess that proves my point that he's been incredibly serviceable. Like he's not made mistakes and that's all I'll say the offensive staff really needed him to do. And DJ, I think has done a great job of that where he gets into trouble is when he tries to do too much on a blitz and and Mm -hmm. maybe 
fit the ball into too tight of a window when he's got a guy in his face. And, and he, you know, fortunately has not done that in the red zone. He's made really good choices. Tim, you our guest. We'll be at Tim's location in downtown Corvallis Thursday, Friday, Friday for, uh, for lunch and for the Joe Beaver show. Looking forward to it. So with UCLA being as, as great of a defense as they are, but also the pressure, we hear about the edge rushing. We hear about, uh, the difficulty in running against this team, does that not afford for things like fire passes to the tight end or or uh, or screen plays? I mean, don't you counter everything in football? So if they're great at rushing and putting pressure, then you counter over the top of that to pull them back. Yeah, this is a little bit like Washington State to me on the defensive side of things where Washington State had a very stout D-line, as we found mm-hmm. out, and, and they're tough to rush against. And, and I think we talked about it before that game, just the idea that it's tough to, to rush the ball in Pullman. It's, it's tough to rush the ball against UCLA. They've just historically had a, a good front seven or eight. And, and so the yards up front are, are precious. And to open up you know, something downfield, I think you almost think of play action and, and whether it's shorter, you know, mid-level bootlegs or whether you're going to play action and take a shot over the top um, on maybe the, the angle type play that, that Jack caught a couple weeks ago um, at home. Uh, those are the, the types of schemes the offense is going to have to go through and run. The interesting thing is I, I feel like we run this quick screen and we don't get much out of it, and then all of a sudden we break it for a 70-yard touchdown. And so mm-hmm. I think that's another kind of component to the Beavers' offense, that the quick screen can be a downfield threat as well. And and if if you get a big chunk of yards out of that thing, uh, you know, one out of every five times you run it, it's worth it. And... And so that's another way to keep that D-line in check and, and that real tough pass rush is because, again, if if they're going with real tough pass rush, John, what are they leaving open? Well, right. maybe it's the quicks, maybe it's the downfield, but it's definitely something in the coverage area. Do you, do you, and, notice, do you notice that we don't, we don't run a lot of, uh, you know, deep drop back center screens, the, the traditional type screens? It's a lot of bubble screens and stuff to the outside. Am I missing something on that? No, yeah, it's more quick screen to the outside. I think mm-hmm. you're right with that. I did, we did run tight end screen, the old 84 wide delay is what we used to call it with Coach Erickson. I saw us run that a couple weeks ago, and uh, we didn't get a ton out of it, but it, we got a little bit of yardage. Um, I, my guess is, kind of like with Steven Jackson, it, it was tough to run a screen to him because who are they keying off right. of? Right. They're keying off of Martinez. And, and so I think it's very similar and, and, or whoever's in there, they're keen off of our backs because we've got three very good ones. And, and so again, let's not let the back catch the ball with a full head of steam mm-hmm. with three or four linemen in front of him blocking downfield. Let's, let's, let's take our bets with the wide receiver and, and believe we can tackle him and, and again, if you break a big one one out of five or six times, that's worth that that play offensively. And, and so that that's the way I look at it, probably why our, our running backs are not quite as involved. Last couple of things with Tim U.S. Big Jim Wilson coming up here in a few minutes to share his thoughts. And we'll get in with Jim a little bit more about what he's seen 
specifically from UCLA, John and Tim have talked about it a little bit. I did want to ask you, Tim, about your 2003 season and your own two-touchdown game against Stanford. Were you of a mind late, hey, I may get a third? Were you close to that at all? No, I think I caught that uh, second touchdown in the fourth quarter. Okay. The first one was early on in the game, and, and that's you know kind of a, <laughs> it's a good story, but a sad story, but it all worked out. <laughs> They, well, they did not adjust to the motion when I came across, and I, I think we were running kind of a, a flat corner concept, and nobody traveled with me, and they were in man, and so Derek, you know, just dumped the ball <laughs> off me in the flat, and that's when I, all the guys said, "Oh, we got it's your senior season, it's your senior game, senior day, you got to do something big." So we did the, the Lambo leap, and I think you called it the Reese or Reach or something. <laughs> I think my face mask came down and broke a kid's nose when I jumped oh, up into the stands or something. Sad. And we ended up, we had lightning ended up giving him a football and some swag. And I, I ended up meeting him a few years back. Good. And now he's growing, obviously good, good kid. And, uh, and so, you know, coach Chris, we got 15 yards out of that one. And coach Chris got on the phone and yelled at me pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, and so the game progressed and, we were running kind of the, the big angle corner concept, and they were really trying to get Jamie a touchdown for, for James Newsom yes. to break the record <clears throat> right. at that time. And they doubled him on his big angle. And so it left me in a one-on-one uh, on my corner route. And so, you know, really the, the route was called for James specifically. Coach Riley would call, or Coach uh, Chris and Coach Riley would call it the alumni zone. So you're kind of in that spot where you – you take a shot at the end zone to keep the alumni happy. You, know, you take a, a big play shot. And, and so we, we were going to J new on it. They doubled him and Derek threw it to me. And it was actually probably one of the more miraculous catches of my career where it was kind of a, a true over the shoulder and um, kind of in that we're right down where the new ramp is at and the entrance to the visitor's locker room. I, I, I never know what the directions are in our stadium yeah. because it's not truly north-south. No, it is. But, uh, but it was down down towards that ramp. And mm-hmm. it was a special day because it was senior day and, and very thankful that you know, obviously I played with a lot of great players. And Derek, Derek and I worked on that throw a lot, and he delivered it right where it needed to be. And, and uh, it, was, it was a very fun day. And, and, you know, you cherish those days because you, didn't, you have one in a career. And, and obviously Jack's a big target for them, but this is that's a day he'll never forget. He catch three touchdowns Absolutely. in the game. Really cool. That's, that's yeah. a big day. Tim, yeah. we're going to talk more about other things on on Friday at your place, eleven to one on the Joe Beaver Show. But back to 03 for a moment. Jim Wilson's just around the corner, so maybe if you <laughs> reflect on this, I thought that your touchdown reception at, at USC then either a, maybe a week later. Uh, or after the Oregon game, I can't quite remember when that occurred, but the the order. But Derek threw an incredible ball to you just before halftime to cut the lead to twenty eight fourteen, and you caught a touchdown in the Coliseum, if I remember correctly, uh, away from the Peristyle entrance end. And then when Jay New caught his record breaking touchdown pass, I don't know if Paul Christ or Mike Riley yelled at him, but he threw the football into the stands. <laughs> Do you remember both I of those? I can't remember if he threw it or if he punted it, but I know the ball went into the stands <laughs> he, a long way. He threw it. To, he threw it. His family. Yes. He threw it. There you go. So, uh, yeah, he threw that one into to where his family was at watching the game. Yeah, and that was a that was a long day down there. I think the final was fifty six twenty six or something yeah. like that. But yeah. uh, 
had a had a catch. I think that was either on a hot or on a on a wide delay type mm-hmm. route. Tight end is either Fire Michigan or or it was a, a hot route. And I just remember getting the ball and turning up field, and thinking there's nobody there, and, <laughs> and uh, just just running. And I think a guy kind of came and, and tried to dive at my ankles on like the one yard line, and I flipped into the end yep. zone and, and uh, right right before half, and that was a you know, we felt like we were in that game, and, mm-hmm. and that was where USC is just strong and good, and just kind of overpowered us when it was all said and done. And, and uh, but it, you, you don't forget those games playing in the Coliseum, no. like that, scoring a touchdown. Very, very good memories. And obviously, Jamie had a day. Mike Hass had a day. Oh my well gosh, that day. So. De- and Mike Riley said the best throw he ever had a quarterback make might have been Derek's throw on that play to Hass, ninety yards, not a touchdown. <laughs> Got it down to the yeah, three yeah. or four, and then Steven ran it in. But the throw, the throw, Riley said, that's just as good as stre- the strength involved in that throw was off the charts. Yep, Derek had a huge arm. And and I think that's obviously something that sets the true uh, you know, elite quarterbacks apart. And and that's where you know DJ doesn't have as big of an arm as some of some mm-hmm. of those other guys. But what he showed, especially in that mid-range throw, he's very accurate with it, and he can throw on the run. I've seen him throw across his body. Um, but that's also why maybe we haven't we take our shots with shorter mm-hmm. throws and expect a you know a little yak out of it mm-hmm. some, some yards after the catch and. Uh, I, I'm excited for this week for the Bees. I mean, you, you dream of these types of matchups as a player, five and one, four and one, two ranked teams, yep. and and, uh, and just go to duke it out and have fun doing it. Hey, Tim, thanks for your time. We'll talk about uh, your next question. Why do you feel less people or youth are playing football in our state? We'll get to that and other things at uh, the Roadshow you're kind enough to host on Friday in the Edward Jones parking lot across the street from your office, 11 to 1. Tim, great to talk to you. We'll see you soon here in a couple of days. Sounds good, thanks. Have a good one. Thank you. Tim Ewis, our guest. We'll talk to him again on Friday. Big Jim Wilson, the Hall of Famer, next on Joe Radio. And then at 3 o'clock, the tailgate show and the Beaver Block Party with Ron Callen and Steve Priest. Big Jim Wilson and yours truly also join that. And I have the pleasure of calling the game from the Reeser Stadium Press Box with Big Jim, Hall of Famer, joins us on the Joe Beaver Show. Time is short, Jim. Thank you for making some time. So let's just jump right into it. What has UCLA found to last year? They were 111th, according to this metric, in stop rate on defense. 111th in the country. The Beavers were number 22 and led the Pac-12 in that category. This year, UCLA threw six, five games, third in the country in defensive stop rate. What's happening with UCLA's defense, Jim? Well, they went out to the transfer portal and they got <laughs> a guy from Washington and a guy from Cal and a guy from Hawaii and a guy from Alabama, two guys from North Texas State, and uh, several more. And every one of those guys stepped right in. And that's what's t- the amazing part to me. The talent level's really high. These guys are good guys. Latu from Washington and mm-hmm. And uh, Aquino Williams, a defensive tackle from Oregon. You remember Mousau, the the middle linebacker from Hawaii. Uh, The Omi from uh, Yemi, this is nickname. I don't know how to say his last name. From Cal, the big 6'6 linebacker. Great guys, but what what surprised me, how the hell well they're playing together. 
And, and I think that's where you got to credit UCLA and their defensive coaches. Well, and you credit, too, just as you have uh, you have certainly been effusive in your praise of Trent Bray and the move to Bray, UCLA and Chip went and found Danton Lynn, Anthony Lynn's son, and made him the coordinator at a million bucks per. And you have to give him some credit, too, for finding ways to put all these guys together and play at the level they're playing at. Absolutely. I mean, when you go from a group that's, that's having trouble getting stops to a, a group that is, is basically uh, relying on their, on their defense, I mean, that's really where Oregon State was. Uh, you're exactly right about Trent Bray. So absolutely, yeah, Danton Lynn needs to get a lot of the credit. Okay, Jimmy, so how do you see the matchup then? Having said that, what the, the weak spot? Yeah, what the Beavers are up against when DJ and company go against that D? Well, I think because of Oregon State's offense, the way they do things, uh, and I've been saying this from the start, they're built for the long haul. They can go through this conference because they can run. You get a, a team like Washington State, they're all pass, and then they come up against a UCLA defense that can rush the passer and uh, and distract, and they're, they're, they're sunk. But the Beavers can run the ball, and they'll run right at UCLA, and that way you prevent UCLA's defense from just pay, playing the run on the way to the quarterback, is which they, what they did against Washington State. So that that's the neutralizer, and so... Uh, you know, Oregon State had 350 or so yards against Utah, uh, a, a ferocious defense. And this defense is going to be no better. Uh, I think not quite as strong physically in some places and maybe more athletic in others, but they're not going to be better than Utah's defense. And um, so, I mean, I like Oregon State's chances. I think DJ is coming off of a great game. I hope that, you know, that trend continues. And if he can throw the ball the way he threw the ball, uh, against Cal, then Oregon State will move the ball at school points. So I, I like the offensive part. The defensive part is a bit of an X factor to me. I don't know where we're at defensively. Uh, last week we gave up 40 points to Cal and uh, over 200 yards rushing. And quite frankly, I thought Cal's offense was had our defense on their heels. And so a week to practice, and uh, we'll see. But I, I don't. I think they'll be ready. I think they'll play hard, and I think I think they'll aim to take away the run. So, but not the Beavers don't shy away from the run. They do what they normally do, right? They don't try to go heavy on the pass just because they're afraid of the rush. Absolutely, no. They'll come right out. They'll, they'll try to establish the run. You have to. If, 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 if well, here's the thing: if UCLA comes out and they've got eight in the box and they just flat out, we're not letting you, you know, run. You know, then I, I think you're you'll still run at times, but you don't want to bang your head against the wall. That, if you have advantages number wise, numbers wise in the passing game, you pass every play. But it, 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 that won't be the case. They'll come out like everybody and try to say we're going to try to stop you with six in the box, like Utah did. And then you know we look up after you know near the end of the first quarter. Look, Oregon State's already got 59 yards rushing. Well, then Utah started moving more people in the box and got to halftime and look Oregon State's got 50 yards rushing yeah. you know so but but we were able to hit big plays because of that so yeah I get it it's a cat and mouse game but they'll come out and try to just see if they can get pressure with only four and stop the run with six and if they can then you know Oregon if they do that Oregon State will definitely have to run the ball at that right right Jim Wilson our guest here on the Joe Beaver show now back to the offense or, or the defense of the other team uh, what what do you think went wrong? What do you? Because Ott's a great running back, but there were some gaps in there that 
were right at the handoff. There, it wasn't as if he earned it. Plus, there's a lot of missed tackles, so clearly that has to be addressed in practice. I, I'm sorry, John. I missed most of that. You're talking about Oregon State's missed tackles. Last yeah, Oregon State's missed tackles defense. is one thing. The rush defense, but also just the 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 point of attack for Ott. There were occasions and when and Ifonse, yeah, where it was just wide open, and and so you yeah. know what happened. I think on a couple of occasions, you're probably talking about some missed assignments. You know, a guy's supposed to be in a gap and he's not. There's no question on some of those just burst plays. Mm-hmm. But it, it, I think that is an easier fix. You know, you do your homework, you get where you got to be. The harder fix is getting people to tackle, and the tackling, and particularly in the secondary, I thought was rough. A lot of that, those guys were pretty tough. I mean, uh, particularly Fonse was a very hard guy to bring down. And uh, this week, the guy, the, the main back, he, he carried the ball 30 times. He's a bulldog. Mm-hmm. His name's Carson Steele, and he's, he's rough. But he doesn't lose yards. He had 30 carries, and I think he had lost. He was 143-plus minus two, so for 141. He's a straight-ahead guy, and you've got to tackle him. And... Um, so anyway, I don't know how much of that was. That you know, there's two defensive backs, Jaden Robinson and and um, Gary Cooper Jr. were, uh, or Ryan Cooper Jr. were uh, out, and then the, uh, Tyrese Ivy went in there, and then he was out. I don't know how much of that attributed to it, but I, I guarantee you that'll be a focus this week for the Beavers during practice. Jim, final thing: the UCLA offense is certainly tackling people better, stopping people better. What about UCLA? You mentioned the Bulldog running back and Steele, tough to bring down. What have you seen from Dante Moore? What threat level of quarterback does he pose? Uh, I, I think there's some things that you're going to like to hear. One is he, he's very athletic, but they do not use him in the run scheme. He may he may escape and, and so forth, but he, he does not run the football. He's got like minus 78 yards rushing. Whereas, you know, you look almost any one of those guys across the board has positive yards. I mean, BJ's over 100 uh, positive yards. So that's, that's good. The Beavers don't have to scheme about taking away the quarterback run. Um, he, he is athletic. They roll him up, do a lot of half rolls. Uh, they do a lot of short passes, tunnel screen. Um, they fake a lot. They, they run what I call, like, um, uh, pass action run, where they – they come out, they make it look like they're going to pass, even almost fake a pass and handoff. Uh, it, it's interesting, but the, the kid is clearly a, a talented guy, but it takes time to process, and they're just so-so on offense. And I, I think the biggest thing is, well, there's two things. They lost their three best offensive players. Uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, the quarterback, he took he took every snap for four years mm-hmm. at, at quarterback. So whoever came in was not going to really be an experienced guy. Uh, their best receiver was Jake Bobo, the sort of hybrid age guy, and their best running back, Zach Charbonnet, was a two-time thousand-yard rusher. So there's the guys that touched the ball all year last year for UCLA, or the last two yeah. years for UCLA. Hey, and, and, and so everybody needed to be replaced. Right. And, Jimmy, as we close, about a minute left, people have also said, Wilner and others, Coming into Reeser, Reeser's become a thing. And playing in that environment, the crowd, the noise, et cetera, night game, fans into it, that's not easy for any quarterback or a young one like Dante to deal with. So do, how much of an advantage, in a sense, do you feel like just the Beavers at home have? 
It, I think it's everything. If you look at this week, uh, Oregon's at Washington. If that was at Oregon, Oregon would probably be favored. But no, it's in Seattle, Washington favored. You, you look at uh, uh, Arizona's plan and Pullman. Yeah, I'm going with the home team. I think Reeser is even a bigger home field advantage than those. And I think it's everything. It's kind of my punchline for this whole week is it's homecoming, which means mm-hmm. they were the home team. And it's going to be just an electric atmosphere, a great matchup, but sneaky yeah. great. Yeah. Maybe the game a little north to us is, is taking some of the uh, headlines away or Notre Dame, USC, but this is a great matchup. It sure is. And, Jim, and I, I look, yeah. the home crowd is going to be the difference. Good work, Jimmy. Thank you. We'll see you Saturday. Thanks, Jim. That's Big Jim Wilson. We've got Gavin Mars next. The Joe Beaver Show is on the air. 22. What do you mean? 22. After all the uncertainties of the past two years, there's been an expectation and a hope for a more normal 22-23. But now the question is... USC and UCLA do. They're both Big Ten schools. Yeah. But where does that leave the rest of us? Who could possibly answer that question in this strange new era of analytics? Mad transfers. I didn't get hit. It looks to me like you portaled it. What? You know, portal from wherever you were to here. What's that? It's a, a different kind of portal. It's just changed so radically, and we're all running to catch up. And realignments. They both be pencils. Yeah. All we do know is the boys are back, and the Joe Beaver Show plots its own course. Now there are a few more topics that we have to cover, and we will not talk about transfers, and we will not talk about my mother. We will talk about what I want to talk about. Fair enough. Who's next? Joe Beaver is on 1240 Joe Radio. It is a pleasure to welcome you into the second hour. Mike Parker with John Warren. Nigel Burton will join us tomorrow from the Pac-12 Networks. They're coming in for their pregame festivities and halftime and postgame stuff. Nick and Ashley and uh, Nigel will talk to Coach Burton tomorrow. You and I will be at basketball. And we will be watching our next guest in practice. It's media day today. So the guys have, I believe they have the day off unless Coach Thompson put the guys who didn't go to media day (laughs) through paces earlier this morning. But Gavin Mars, a freshman on the men's basketball team, kind enough to join us now. Jordan Pope and Tyler Bilodeau are at media day with Coach Tinkle. And you, Johnny, as you mentioned, you and I will get to be at uh, the basketball practice center tomorrow, setting up our show just outside of the practice court and watching what I think is a team that will warrant yeah. a great deal of attention, excitement for what's ahead with a lot of new faces, including Gavin Mars, who is kind enough to join us for the first time ever on the Joe Beaver Show. We look forward to seeing Gavin and the guys at work tomorrow in practice. Gavin, good afternoon. Nice to meet you. Welcome to the Joe Beaver Show. How's life going for you so far in Corvallis? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's been great so far. I love it here. I've uh, been here about three, four months now, so uh, no, it's, it's been great. Corvallis is a great place, great people, enjoying every moment of it. We'll get to a little bit more about basketball proper and your own uh, arduous journey to get here and all the things you went through dealing with a back injury 
that took away almost two full seasons in high school. You've come out of it on the other side apparently pretty well. But take us through, if you would, Gavin, a little bit about how you ended up a Beaver and how that worked. And even through injury, people kind of, in, in a sense, believing in you and giving you the opportunity here. Yeah, well, um, I definitely, like you said, I had a had a lot of injuries, a lot of setbacks in high school. But um, probably about, it was probably about sophomore year I first heard from Morgan State. Um, it, was, it was pretty simple, just a recruiting questionnaire that gets sent out. Um, and then probably beginning of my junior AAU season, Marlon started calling me. Um, and then they came to watch. He came to watch me play once. Um down in Anaheim. Uh, I went through some injuries after that. Coach Tinkle tried to come watch the game, wasn't able to. I ended up getting hurt. Um, but I just, yeah, they, they believed in me. Um, that's, that's what led me here. They, they showed me more sports than anyone else. How did you do psychologically, emotionally through those injuries? I mean, I'm sure that you got set back and you were bummed about it, but do you have uh, the fighter's mentality? Yeah, I think I just... Uh, Tried to look on the bright side. Being able, being able to watch the game from the sidelines helped me learn a lot. Uh, helped me see a coach's perspective. You know how to how to run plays, how to execute defense. Um, so definitely, just trying to keep a positive state of mind through all those injuries. Um, try and get better in the ways I could um, is what got me through. Your own high school coach, Anthony Graham at uh, Ellensburg High School, and you credit other coaches too, Tom Eggers. Uh, Donald Brady helping you along the way. But Coach Graham said you have an, a very high basketball IQ. Gavin, do you, you may have already had that before the injuries, but it sounds like you're saying you built that up, observing, watching, maybe even through a coach's eyes. Tell us a little bit about how you've developed the IQ through the years. Um, you know, I always, uh, when I was younger, I played um, mostly the guard positions, and I think kind of seeing the game, um, kind of orchestrating the offense from that. Uh, that helped me develop a little bit of my IQ, but um, definitely sophomore, junior year when I was hurt, um, Coach Graham really, he knew he knew I wasn't able to be on the court, but he tried to help me get better in every way possible. He kind of taught me about how coaches run things, taught me about how to run offense, defense. So um, I definitely give him a lot of credit for developing my basketball IQ, and uh, that's, that's why it's where it's at today. So is it true that you shot up seven inches in one year's time? <laughs> yeah, um, about that was probably eighth grade. Uh, started eighth grade, I was about six feet, six one. Um, end of eighth grade, I was six, six eight, six nine. So wow, um, yeah, it's 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 a crazy. It was a crazy time for me. Uh, definitely changed how I played the game of basketball. But uh, grateful for it. Did Helped you me here? You know, I, I remember going through a period of time. I'm like four foot, five foot, nothing. But I do remember <laughs> growing pains. My legs hurt at night. It was simple growing pains, hence the saying. Yeah. I mean, were you in pain most of that year because of that? I I definitely, uh, I, I wouldn't say I felt good, but um, I I wasn't to the point where I couldn't, you know, keep doing, doing what I do. So, uh I, I made it through. It wasn't terrible. Yeah, and and when you were going through that, it, to go from a, basically a, a shorter, like a guard type of mentality, now you're going to be looking to your back to the basket, as they used to say. Now the modern day game, even seven two, seven three guys are shooting threes. But in the old fashioned way of now, you're back to the basket. Uh, as far as being, you know, 
not clumsy and your your feet growing and your legs and everything. What did you do in that short amount of time knowing that you were growing so fast and you were going to be playing as a big man rather than a face to the basket distributor or even a, you know quick quick guard type? Mm-hmm. I I definitely I worked with all my coaches um, just on on footwork. It was a ton of footwork with my trainers because um, obviously being a big guy that's super important. Um, cause I had, I, I was able to thankfully keep a lot of the quickness and speed I had when I was, when I was shorter. Um, but now having the footwork, being able to use that to my advantage over guys who, uh, may be stronger than me. Um, it's, yeah, footwork was definitely the most important thing for me during that time. Freshman Gavin Mars, we'll see him tomorrow with the rest of the guys in practice over at the basketball practice center, Ellensburg high school. Let me, I, I want to get this straight. You, you were listed at one point in one service I saw at six eleven. The Beavers roster says seven foot. So are you still growing? Are you a legit official seven footer now, Gavin? Yeah, I've I've, I've officially made to seven foot. Uh, I don't know if I'm still growing. We'll see. But uh, <laughs> got to the seven foot threshold. Are, are both your parents tall? Yeah, that was my next question. <laughs> um, my my dad my dad's six four. Um, my mom's 6'1", so uh, pretty tall, but uh, I didn't expect to get quite this tall. That. What about your siblings? You have two. Are they also taller in, in their classrooms than than other uh, youngsters are? Yeah, so uh, I have twin siblings. They're juniors right now. Uh, my brother, he's 6'9", um, and then my sister, she's 6'4". She's actually committed to play volleyball here in a couple of years. Ah, so, well, that's uh, great. That'll be fun. That is awesome. Yeah. That's that's a good backstory. I didn't realize that. That's really cool. Gavin Marr is joining us. You mentioned offense and defense, trying to learn concepts and ideas. One of the things mm-hmm. in the great story Jesse Soa wrote the other day in the Corvallis Gazette Times is you said part of what attracted you here was the commitment to defense from Coach Tinkle's part. Tell us a little bit about that, how important that is to you. Yeah, I've, I've always uh, considered myself more of a defensive player. Um, I feel like with, with my length, with my speed, with my athleticism, that's something I can kind of, there I can thrive in. Um, and Coach Tinkle, I mean, he's he's great with defense. He's great with switching up defenses, um, really catches teams off guard, and that's, that's something I really liked about him. And uh, when, I, when I came on my visit, he kind of, you know, t- told me about what they do, um, and that's something I decided I want to be a part of. Um, so def- defense being, I think, a strength of my game, that was important for me in finding college, so I'm glad I found it. A friend of mine visited a practice of yours the other day, and he came out of the practice saying, Parker, they're big. There's a lot of size here. And he was impressed and liked the depth and the size. Tell me a little bit about Gavin. He's talking about you and others. How do you feel about sort of, you're a newcomer here, but we're going to get a good look at you tomorrow, but the roster makeup and the size my friend was referring to. Yeah, no, we, we definitely, we've got a big front line this year, obviously, 7-2, Joel Mariel, um, and then Casey Abekle, who's, who's listed at 6-10, but I believe he's a footer as well. <laughs> um, and then and then me and Thomas and Dong, um, who's 6-10, so we definitely have, a big front line, and that's not even. We got Tyler Billado as well, who's obviously a, a great returner. So um, that's, I feel like that's a strength we have this year. We'll be able to finish around the basket better um, than last year, and um, definitely something we're trying to take advantage of in practices. Coach Tinkle's really emphasizing getting down in the post and scoring down there. So, yeah. 
you guys have some good battles the, amongst the four of you, the, the the centers? Oh yeah, it's uh, it's every day is a battle. Um, we're all. I think what makes it cool is we're all different players. Um, so we all have our own, you know, strengths, and that'll that should really help us come game time. Gavin Mars, our guest, freshman from Ellensburg, joining us on the Joe Beaver Show. You talked about, you know, the guard skills and the IQ and playing with the ball in your hands a lot and distributing and so on. How comfortable are you now as a two-way kind of player offensively, facing the basket, shooting, what's your range, putting it on the floor, playing back to the basket? How's that all kind of evolving mm-hmm. for you? Um, I definitely I was able to keep uh, some of my some of my skills from being a guard. Obviously, ball handling at seven foot is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still feel like I can handle the ball pretty well. Um, I do a lot of my a lot of my scorings in the mid range, mid range pull ups, uh, face ups, um, and working to extend my range all the time. But um, definitely wouldn't consider myself a back to the basket big. I was able to kind of keep some of my some of my guard skills and then implement the footwork needed to be a you know a power forward center. So, well, if needed, Gavin, could you? Could you play the low block and call for it if they if they needed that inside basket with one one or two seconds left on the clock? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, and that's something um, that coach is emphasizing for me in practice every day is uh, getting better position on the low block. Um, and when I get down there, trying to use quick moves to get up over bigger defenders. Last couple of things with Gavin Mars. When I mention Ellensburg, I know I, I've been through the town a few times. I like it. It's a small town kind of feel, certainly. It's central Washington. Where did you come in on the Coug Husky world? What were you were you aware of the Beavers at all? I mean, where what kind of rooting interest did you have growing up? Yeah, I was. Um, I'm originally from Kansas. Uh, my dad's a K State grad, um, so we. I kind of for a long time I kept my, uh, my my team back there, but probably probably came in a little bit more on the the Husky side um, mm-hmm. with with Ellensburg, it's kind of split. It's, it's crazy. There's a lot of UW grads and there's a lot of Washington <laughs> State grads. But uh, I definitely wouldn't say I was like a fan of either. I was just, I was more neutral. Okay. And one thing too, I read. This will be the last thing, and we'll learn more about you as we watch you tomorrow and as we get to interact with you and your teammates the rest of this season just around the corner. But I read in an article. I don't know if it was Jesse's in the GT, but somewhere that your growth spurt not only changed your position in basketball, but you had been a, you'd love baseball. You were a good baseball player. So, I mean, is that true? Were you a, are you a Mariner fan, a Beaver baseball fan at all? Know about the success of Beaver baseball here? Is baseball pretty important to you? Yeah, no, baseball growing up, um, I, don't, I don't know if I can say it was my number one sport, but I, I played it all the time. I love baseball. Um, I was a a pitcher and a center fielder. Mostly played a little shortstop um, when I was younger, but uh, I was I was definitely a Mariner fan. I love the Mariners, um, and then I, I had definitely heard of Beaver baseball. It's a great program, a lot of national credibility. So uh, cool! I'm looking forward to getting out and watching some Beaver baseball games. Even though I don't play anymore, it's uh, still yeah. fun for me. Good, Gavin. Did your pops play at K State? Uh, no, he played. Um, he got his doctorate at K State. Um, he played small college football in uh, Eastern Kansas, uh, same school that my my mom played basketball. Cool. Hey, speaking of um, 
baseball. Were you part of the entourage? Because I hadn't met you. I didn't necessarily recognize you, but I called Corvallis Knights games in the summer, and I'd say, well, here comes Tyler Billado and Mikey Retai and Shaul Marial and Casey Abekway and others. Were you part of the and others coming to any of the Knights yeah, games? I was, I, I was probably uh, probably with them. I, pro- I think I went to 10 or 11 wow. Knights games over the summer, so uh, we, we were there a lot. Uh, I, was, I was probably with them. Excellent. Gavin, we look forward to meeting you officially tomorrow. We appreciate you taking time on the show today, and all of us are sitting here going, man, listen to this guy's voice. If you ever want to get into broadcasting, that's also an avenue for you. You have a great sound. We look forward to watching you play hoop tomorrow. Thanks for taking time for us, Gavin. We appreciate it. Welcome to Beaver Nation. Awesome, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Gavin. Boy, what a voice. What a a (laughs) tour-sounding kid. When they talk about the IQ, I believe it, just listening to him talk. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, when he said his dad was 6'9", his right. mom was 6'4", or yeah. uh, his siblings, his sister, 6'4", and his brother, 6'9", he had to have come from, he had to have played somewhere. His sister's coming to play volleyball. Yeah, that is, that's awesome. So we've got a, a nice developing story with young Gavin Mars, who's now hit seven feet, and he calls himself, yeah, I'm a footer. Yeah, I think I like Casey's that. a footer, too. I like that. The great Bill Walton. Did was he, he or wasn't he? He was, and he, he was over seven feet, maybe even seven one. But Bill thought there was a stigma attached. Uh-huh. So all his life, yes. 6'11", yep. Bill Walton, when he was over seven foot, he did not want to be called a footer. But did he tell you that he was over seven Oh, yeah, over? I've, I've confirmed that with him. I said, did you really? Because I, oh, yeah. I remember growing up, and that was, well, he's 6'11". Well, he's right. No, he's over seven feet. But he didn't want to be a footer. <laughs> Open phones and text down the stretch. As if that's going to change anything. <laughs> no, it's two ninety nine, not three dollars. Right. Oh well, psychologically, that's a deal. somehow, some way, that oh, does yeah. make a difference. There was I don't know why, but it does. There was an inventor of that on the morning show. We had a feature, and it was da 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 da. And he, you know him as, but he was the guy who created do the ninety nine cents because psychologically, it's less yeah. than it's a, the, less than, than a the top buck. dollar. You got ten bucks <laughs> and the silver. Name the movie. Uh, that was from The uh, Road to Perdition. <laughs> Not a bad movie, by the way. You got 10 bucks with the magic eye reading how much money Robert Redford had in his pockets. Oh, that was from... Uh, yeah. What was that movie where they... Uh, rocks? Something Rocks. You know well, what I'm, I'm talking about? about one of your favorite movies ever, The Natural. Right? Oh, oh. You got no, no, ten- no. Oh, you're thinking of The Sting, maybe? No, I'm you thinking got of ten uh, bucks. Hot Rocks. Robert Redford. Oh, I've never seen The Hot Rock. It's called The Hot Rock, I believe. Is that okay? I've only seen part of it. Is Georgie Siegel in it? I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I I remember. I've never seen it. I was eight years old, I think, and it was playing on TV, and everybody was in the living room laughing at this show that I wanted to watch, and I was told to go to bed, and I, you know, it was defiant. I was on the stairwell trying to sneak a a watch. Go to bed. No, I want to watch. Go to bed. And I remember that was the movie, Hot Rock. The Hot Rock, I think Siegel and Redford, and I only say that never having seen a moment of it, but having read about it occasionally yeah. flipping through movie books. Yeah. The Hot Rock. Yeah. Never heard of it? Is it worth seeing? It might be. And sneak a peek at the, on the stairwell. That's right. But That's right. you got 10 bucks, Darren McGavin, the natural to yeah. Roy Hobbs. Yeah. And when he wins the bet, McGavin and the silver. <laughs> And once Redford threw the silver in, he lost the bet. And McGavin says, eh, forget it, kid. Forget it. Maybe you'll do me a favor someday. 
Yeah. Setting the stage. Oh, yeah. One of the greatest baseball movies oh. ever. And yet our man who wrote it while at Oregon State College, Bernard Malamud, wrote the ending that he did take the dive. I don't know how you could. Well, they couldn't do, do it change? in Hollywood. Why you not? couldn't do it in Hollywood. Why not? Because people would have walked. They never. That movie did great repeat business. The natural, the music, the home runs, the light structure well, going out, not taking the dive, hitting the home run. There's no way Hollywood is going to have Redford take the dive and have the move, the movie end the way the book did. Until M. Night Shyamalan or whatever his yeah. name is comes along, he'll do it. Well, he'll do it. And other dark, you know, these pictures that end up being so sad and miserable. Yeah. But not 1984. No. And, and that was, Redford uh, had to hit the home run to win it and defy great, the gamblers. Greatest baseball movie ever made. The but in the movie, but in the made. book, in the book, Malamute had him take no, the dive. Most movies don't do the book. We take a break. We come back. Open phones down the stretch. Were the movie makers right to make Roy Hobbs the hero who didn't take the dive? Or our own writing instructor, Bernard Malamud, at Oregon State, when he wrote that novel, had him take the dive. Who was right? Amongst other things. 497-5356, the Downward Dog phone line, the University Honda text line. Great to have you with us on Joe Radio. We continue. If you could text me that, Dougie, just kind of the, you know, the sense of things, if you don't mind. I'm visiting with Doug Blair, conducting radio station business. You trying to get a flight there and back? And Grace, get me a one-way flight to um, ACC country where, did you see that? Like, There's a tweet out there, an X yeah. out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see that one about yeah. some guy from Washington, D.C. now? Williams, somebody or other? And it's nice to see because at least he said the Pac-2 has leverage because uh-huh. and that expect an invite to the ACC or the Big 12 soon. We don't want to go to now, the ACC. I, yeah, it doesn't matter where, quote unquote, where we want to go, what's going to happen. But uh-huh. it was just an interesting sort of slant on everything that we've been talking about. And then the replies that come in. This guy has 10,000 followers, whoever he is, Williams, D.C. media or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I'm saying is. Who are those guys? Who are these guys? When I ask that, I'm not mocking Dave. I'm just wanting to know who they are and sort of what their credentials are. And the who are those guys was asked by Butch and back to Redford, the Hot Rock, the Natural, Sundance Kid. The who are those guys was asked with a sense of awe and admiration because they were so good, not because they were jokers. So we're not mocking. We're just curious. Who are those guys? Who is this Williams DC media guy talking now? At least somebody way out of our market is saying, yeah. "Here's what he's hearing: the Pac-2 has leverage, the assets, the well, that's true. and they're gonna they're gonna parlay that leverage into an Good. invite to a Power Five. That's, that's what this that's, Joker yeah, says. That's what we've been saying. We've been saying that could very well happen because it looks like they should win that that. That but, money and that thing. And all the replies, though, that come in after behind it are, eh, no, the Big 12 isn't doing anything. Right. Forget that. You right. guys are done. So I don't know who those guys who are responding to that either. I just don't know anything. Uh, a lot of slamming. There's a lot of haters out there. There's everything. There's everything on Twitter. That is X, true. And it's it's awful. Real quick answer yeah. to a question before we go to Garrett. Uh, question in, are the Beavers still perfect in the red zone? Yes. 20 of 22. 22 of 22. 22 of 22. Two of those are field goals. The rest are touchdowns. And that's hard to do, as as Timmy mentioned. Yeah, You you do that. I think the Beavers are one of five teams in the country, maybe. that Maybe even less. Maybe less than or that. Few, fewer teams. Yeah. Maybe one of two teams. I've got it written down in my notes, and if I can dig it out, let me see. Yeah, the notes are, 
you accumulate them all week long as you go. We're going to go to Garrett and Kirkland and in just a second. And you're doing things differently with the white paper behind it. So it's, you have bigger area to write on. I like that. Five teams. Yeah. The Beavers are 22 of 22 in the red zone. One of five teams in the country with a 100% success rate. And probably number one as far as total as far number as of touchdowns. touchdown percentage. Probably, yes. That I don't know. Yeah. But I do know stop rate. The metric. <laughs> what is it? Last year, UCLA 111th in stop rate. It's kind of ways. Turn Okay. Stop rate is this. Yeah, how often, how do, you often do you stop somebody either on punts, turnovers, or turnover on downs? Those are the things Basically, factored in. The kill percent. someone's drive. Yes. UCLA is third in the country. The Beavers are like 50th or whatever okay. right now. Okay. At home, I wonder what it would be. You know, that's yeah, worth looking yeah, into. Yeah, yeah. And probably is broken down to that extent. Last year, the Beavers led the Pac-12 in stop rate. And they're not, you know, UCLA right now, number three in the country. People are saying it's the best defense in the country. I look forward to seeing how the Beavers attack it. It's going to be an interesting game. As yeah. Tim Ewis said, the matchup is a very compelling one. So much attention being thrown north, and I get that. But for our purposes in our world, this is the game, and it's a huge one. And I'm not sure what Garrett and Kirkland's plans are. I'm hoping he's planning on coming down here to see the game of the week, in Corvallis, in spite of what's going on in his neighborhood. But we'll find out. Garrett, welcome to the Joe Beaver Show. Hey, thanks, Mike and John. And, yes, I will be down in Corvallis. Um, And also, like you were talking about previously with, is it Big 12, is it ACC? We don't know. So I appreciate you guys doing the research for us. And with with that being said, and and the Cal game last week and UCLA game upcoming this week, it has me feeling like it's 1999 again, and hoping for a 1999 performance <laughs> when UCLA comes to Corvallis in October uh, like we had when it was 55-7. to 7. So do you, mind, do you mind sharing for the rest of us, what are your memories from, from that day as the game that really turned the corner in Dennis Erickson's first year? It really did, Garrett, because as you recall, it sounds like you do. I don't know, were you? I do. How old are you, if you don't I, mind me asking? Well, um, I was at 1999, I was 10 years old, and it was actually that game that I was the junior Benny T kid. Oh, wow. For the second, second half kickoff. So I, uh, and this, you know, there's some things that are, you know, I remember just being down on the sideline and a few things, but it wasn't until going back to, to YouTube this past week and watching, watching the replay of the game, um, that, you know, Jonathan, you know, let, we really put it on in the second quarter and so got getting to be down there and everything. So I. I remember it okay mm-hmm. in person, but I remember mm-hmm. it more uh, thanks to the, to, to the YouTube. Yeah, I got it. And Garrett, mm-hmm. the thing about that game, you're right about it, turned the corner because Dennis got out, as you may recall and have read about certainly, got out 3-0, then lost mm-hmm. three consecutive three. games. The first conference game was at USC, down 37-7, to cut it to 37-29 and had an, recovered an onside kick actually had the ball with a chance to tie that thing as the game ended. So with Terrence Bryant coming off the bench for Jonathan Smith. So that's started, right. though, a three-game. A little different from what they did the year, the year yes. before up in Seattle. when they flipped roles. Exactly. Yeah. But in, and then the following week, the Huskies come to town, and the Beavers had probably, I, I would say, their worst game under Dennis in that mm-hmm. game. Lost 47-7. to. Uh, 
47 to 14 or something like that. I don't I can't remember the exact final, but at one point the Beavers were down 47 to nothing. And no, the, the I would say, and it wasn't it wasn't that close by half by half. Yeah, and it was 47 to 21. And my mind working backwards remembers. The final was 47-21. Then you uh, and I think the Huskies had a couple of pick sixes. It was just not a good event at Reeser Stadium. The following week, down to Stanford, and four or five trips inside the Cardinal 10, three fumbles. Yeah, we ended up losing that game, 21-17, when we dominated the game. Jonathan, Absolutely. and you know, yeah. Jonathan throws that 50-yard pass to Marty Maurer yep. at the, you know, dives at the one, and then still can't, still can't make it happen. Yeah, and Jonathan threw in that game for 405 yards, and the Beavers lose mm-hmm. 21-17 with the fumbles inside the 10, several of them. So that's the mood kind of going in. I remember Dennis that week being around him a little bit of practice, interviewing him before the game, just frustrated as can be, knowing that he had a good team that had yet to put it all together. Well, you can ask Bob Toledo in UCLA. Did the Beavers put it together that day? Yes, 55-7 to seven Four, Beavers. 42 to nothing at halftime. <laughs> so if, if, you, if the Beavers get a repeat performance, then anything's possible in this life. I don't expect 42 at halftime or 55 in the game. No. But I do think the Beavers, as Jim Wilson said a few minutes ago, Garrett, because they can run the ball, Washington State couldn't. You look at the Washington State numbers and you go, oh, my gosh, look what they did. They held them to 12 yards rushing. Well, in a sense, Washington State holds themselves to that kind of rushing. They did get after Cam Ward. you got to give them credit for it. They had a plan that worked 19 of 39, two interceptions, 197 yards. It's a good defense, well coached with great athletes on the defensive side of the ball. So I don't expect the Beavers to put up 55 or 52, but I think they'll put up enough to win. Well, and and the the blueprint for that game back in 99 is the same one as Utah a couple weeks ago and it would hope to be the same the same thing um, you know here on Saturday is is get up get up early and you know James Allen comes on a blitz knocks out Cody Paws <laughs> and uh, then then it was all over from there. Yeah. All over from there. It was, and then 2000, a br- what a wonderful game down there in the Rose Bowl. Beavers win two years in a row against them, 99 and 2000. The Marty Maurer, greatest penalty in the history of penalties yeah. at Oregon State, the false yeah. start at the goal line that prevented UCLA James, from taking James the Battle lead. Draw. Antonio Battle on third, on third and 22 gets 23 in a first down on a handoff. Unbelievable from the goal line. Beavers win at 44-38. The following year, though, I remember Bob Toledo, the last time these two teams played as ranked teams was 2001. And it was the first... ABC at 1230. Exactly. Good memory, Gary. And it was the first first game for the Beavers after the attacks on 9-11. There had been a three-week hiatus since the Beavers had played last when UCLA came to town on a hot September day, September 29th, at Reeser. And Bob Toledo said, well, and, and the late great D. Andros had said, after the 55-7 win, D. said, that might have been the greatest win in Oregon State history. D. was really big on, on that 55-7 win two years earlier. And Bob Toledo drew attention to that. Well, you know, we made their season. We made their lives two years ago. We may, you know, we're going to, we've got a different plan this time around. Well, he had a great team, and they beat the Beavers 38-7 to on kind of a, a hot, miserable day. It was all UCLA. And once again, I don't expect that this time around either. 
No, no. Well, thank thank you for the trip down memory lane, Mike. I do appreciate that. Anything close to uh, to that fifty-five to seven, or at least just a a dominant defense that then uh, makes makes UCLA one-dimensional. Yeah, uh, is what we're looking for. Garrett, how are things up in the great uh, north in terms of keeping your ear to the chatter about Washington, Washington State, and how they're handling all of this? The animus between those two schools seems as great and as large as ever. What kind of stuff do you hear on both sides of the lawsuit, the preliminary injunction coming up, et cetera? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, now, now mud is starting to get thrown, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's as much as all summer and up until the other day, Husky fans were saying, oh, I'm so excited to go to the Big Ten, and I'm so sorry for the Cougs and the Beavs. Um, you know, we wish you well. Now it's starting to be, um, wait, we, we took a half share to get to the Big Ten, and you guys are going to end up getting more money, and we, you know, we need seven home games in order to make this you know, financially feasible so we can't play the Apple Cup because we need those, those home mm-hmm. non-conference games instead of doing the home-and-home. Home. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's been all copacetic for a couple months, and we will just this week starting to get a little nasty. But maybe, maybe they're mixing their duck hate and directing it towards the bees and the cougs, um, you know, for no reason. But but we we shall see. Garrett, thank you. Good to hear from you. Uh, good to get a call from Kirkland and Garrett. If you uh, if you have something you'd care to contribute about UCLA memories, I guess part of the thing we've been doing. We did it with Washington State. We did it a little bit with Cal. If this is the last, is there a UCLA moment or game in time in history that? comes to your mind, that was the 99 game that Garrett mentioned, 55-7 Beavers. Is there any other game along the way in this series, which UCLA has dominated as USC dominated? The wins are infrequent against the LA schools historically, but there have been more of them in the, the millennium we're in now than in many decades prior to that. But even then, there were some upset wins over UCLA along the way. Is there anything that comes to your mind as you think about those years and I have a question yeah what was it was it UCLA that the Beavers were playing at home and it was a close game until about five minutes left and then it became a blowout was that UCLA yes it was doc you look like I brought you pain well because I felt it from that man and Paul Buecher who was covering the Oregonian came running into the booth is part what happened is Parker okay the Beavers were ahead John 14 to 12 and as Mike Riley said, with Gallo's humor, a year or two later or whatever, oh my gosh, just thinking about it, the Beavers were ahead 14 to 12 and did not see the ball on offense again until they were down like 40 to 14. That was one of the craziest fumbling punts I've ever seen. Fumbling punts recovered by UCLA twice in a row for touchdowns, short field touchdowns. Uh, when the Beavers were about to get the ball back in decent field position or whatever, they they got a personal foul penalty. I think Gerard Lawson or somebody hit somebody way out of bounds. Yeah. And instead of now they're going to punt, we're finally going to get the ball back. That created a first down for UCLA. And at that point, I just, you know, and the Beavers get the stop, UCLA will say, oh, that personal foul, and it's going to keep the drive alive for UCLA, that type of thing. And I, yeah, I fell back on my stool and fell off the stool in the booth. 
at Reeser and Paul Bucher heard it or whatever. Okay, is everybody okay in here? <laughs> Jim, yeah, Parker's fine. He just fell off the stool. That's a you know, once or twice a game occurrence, <laughs> but not really. That was an unforgettable, sad moment in time to go up for, to be up fourteen to twelve late in the third and lose forty to fourteen at home. So yes, you bring it up, John, and you're right. That was against UCLA, and it was also UCLA in twenty o two. Up 14 to nothing midway through the first quarter. Touchdown, block, punt, recovered by Dennis Weathersby. The late, great Dennis races all the way back. Did I say late? Did we lose Dennis? I don't remember. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. Now, one thing I do know. Yes, and it's on Twitter. No, and, and we're going to be spending some time in the days ahead. And if in the meantime, as we go to break... I got a text from Andy McClowski a couple of days ago regarding Freddie Boyd, who has passed at the age of 73. That name may not resonate with a lot of you who have come to the Beavers later and didn't see him play. I saw him in the NBA more than I saw him in college. And he was on that 9-73 and Philadelphia 76er team in the 72-73 season. But Freddie Boyd has passed. And Andy McClowski texted me and said, before Gary Payton, there was Freddie Boyd. And he considers Gary and Freddie the greatest guards in Oregon State history. Well, he's second to Gary in total assists. He said, and Andy said, and Doug Oxen and others that I've talked to here the last couple of days, what a great player. And my own high school coach that I've referenced a thousand times or more on this show, Tom Phipps, yeah. teammates with Freddie. <clears throat> Tom, I talked to him yesterday. He hadn't heard the news. He almost cried when I told him. He, Freddie's, the, the loss of Freddie is affecting people in a big way. Andy just said he was my all-time favorite beaver. Loved him. Watching Andy grew up in Lebanon, watching him play. As cat-like quick and fast and talented and good. One of the great Beaver players ever, mm-hmm. Freddie Boyd. And he has passed away at the age of 73. Tom was telling me, Coach Phipps said, he, was, he said, I wasn't even fast enough to foul him. I couldn't guard him. I couldn't, he was too quick for me. I couldn't even foul him. That's how quick <laughs> Freddie was in practices. But Tom said, I got better gu- trying to guard the guy. Nobody could guard him. He was that quick and fast, but he said, that was my assignment in practice every day. And, you know, he said, I did everything I could, but I could barely foul him. He was so fast. If you have any thoughts about the great and now late Freddie Boyd, if, if that, if you're hearing the news for the first time, if you remember watching him play with great admiration in the early Ralph Miller years, we're going to try to get a guest or two on in the days ahead to talk about Freddie. And we'll be at the Basketball Center tomorrow where his name, as you just mentioned, is all over the record books mm-hmm. in Oregon State basketball history. Any thoughts about Freddie? 497 5356. Anything else you'd like to share in our final segment today? 497 5356 on Joe Radio. Although I just realized not long ago that, you know, 15 years ago was nothing, right? Right. It was yesterday. Yes. So when I was in high school, early 81, 82, I had just met someone, and that someone's parents would talk about, oh, we were at the 67 game, and OJ, and this. Well, that was only 15 years before that. But it felt like ancient history. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, they're adults. Yes. I'm, I'm 15. They're, right. they're 40. They might as well be 100. And 67? That was, that was a millennia ago right. in my little pea brain world. And now that I'm older, I'm like, 15 years ago? I think I still have things in the corner of the room from 15 years ago. Right, and that's Thursday night against USC. Yeah. At Reeser. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's yesterday. Yes, and, and that was my experience in hearing all of these references to yeah. the 67 game, which is funny because we always joke about how everybody we know was there. Right. And from that point on, that was really the first time I was hearing about it, from that point on, all the stories that I would hear about it came from older people who were there, quote unquote. Right. And I, the people I was talking to the very first time I heard that tale, they really were there. But eh, and you, know. you are right about fifteen years ago is nothing to us now because yeah. we think about oh wait I remember though and maybe it's just because you're young then in 1966 when I discovered this whole thing called sports through yeah. baseball and the radio and all that. I began to read all the baseball literature I could come up with, the baseball stars of 19, yeah. whatever, reading and reading about the great game. And one of the things I read very early on was Don Larson's perfect game, which was just 10 years earlier from that in 1956. <laughs> but for me as a seven, eight year old kid beginning, Don Larson threw a perfect game, oh, October 8th, yeah. 1956. That honestly felt like a different century, yes. a different millennium. I mean, uh, <laughs> that happened ages and ages yes, ago. Yes, yes. It was 10 years before. It was only 10 years before. No, and heck, we go to 2013 now and think about Bolden should have, Victor should have slid down at the one. And right. That, that was just 10 years ago. Yeah, right. It, it's uh, it's amazing because, you know, we, we the older you get, you, you go through more experiences. Yeah. All these games, you know, you, you can remember bits and pieces of them. Um Garrett had some really good memories, and he was only 10, 11, 12 right. years old. So. The cumulative nature of, of things. And, yeah. it, and here's Doug weighing in. Thank you, Dougie. Dougie Blair. And you guys will probably talk a little bit about this. And heading down the stretch of today's show, it begins to hit one midweek, UCLA coming. Yeah. I've been working on charts and preparing and writing down names and past games, and Jim and I do a feature called the Holland-America Matchup where we both sort of talk about, okay, in the series history, that's the idea. Holland America matchup, series history. Uh -huh. Well, okay, let's have some fun with it. What games stand out? What occurs to you about Beaver-UCLA games through the years? If you want to send us a memory or two or call us, we have some open phones right now. If there's one particular Oregon State-UCLA game that either sticks in the craw that made you fall off your chair, wherever you were, the... What do, you, what do you call it? The ma the magical minute, the Dempsey-Tunney slow count when Neuheisel got a couple of extra seconds to kick a field goal. Oh, yeah. Remember that one to yeah. beat the Beavers? I remember. In 2010, I, I, I can think. give you three right now. Boom, just three. Okay. 94, uh, 99, 55 to 7, and whatever year, the 14 to nothing and then losing. Oh, two. Uh, but 94 was an upset win here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was down there. Down the there. Bowl, That's right. That was when Jerry Pettibone was really starting to get that that option clicking with the the special types of players the linemen everything and it was mm -hmm. working they were they were moving the ball on UCLA like crazy i was in a different radio station different newsroom mm -hmm. saying to a buddy at the time in the summer after that fall when they just ran it up and down the field on UCLA cuz at that time i said yeah. they 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 made they found it. it yeah 
in the summer there was this outcry from Beaver Nation. They got to run. They got to throw it more. They got to throw it more. The double slot. And I said to someone right there, yep. if they do, if they if they try to do that, it all if goes, they go away from their away. identity. Yeah. And Jerry has even said, Coach Pettibone, that it was a mistake, but there was a degree of pressure that you got to be able to throw it more. You got to be able to throw it better. And so Jerry tried to do a, a hybrid of the option yeah. of some double slot yeah. stuff. But I just saw and it, it didn't get work. away from the thing that took right. so hard to build to right. to be unique and it worked trying to do anything else. And yeah. that was it. Doug Blair writes, I remember the UCLA game in 89 under Craig Thorpe. The Beavers went 4-7-1 and that year, but beat the Bruins 18-17 to at Parker Stadium. I remember that game. On a cold day in late October, the attendance for the game was 21,510. Wow. And but the a great win. Was, was a green carpet over cement. It was. Back in those days. I remember another UCLA game where it was just pouring down rain at, at Parker Stadium, and the it was the old carpet, so it was before 99. And they almost pulled off the upset. Oh, I know. In 98. And the rain was so hard. You, the yeah. puddles were no, everywhere. I know. The 98 game, I watched the end of that, and it looked like you're going to overtime. Yeah. I mean, that 98 season for the Beavs was a bit of a transformative season. Yeah. As it was to go 5-6. and six. A 5-6 and six at Oregon State earned Mike Riley an opportunity to coach in the NFL. Two close was calls. Considered that UCLA, wondrous. Arizona, and Washington. Well, UCLA, Cal... Washington, Washington, the two-point conversion. Yeah, uh, UCLA, Nelsby, some joker named Nelsby. I mean, Cade McNown in yeah. the midst of a twenty-game winning streak <laughs> at quarterback for UCLA, the pride of West Lynn, flings one deep down the field late to win that game, forty-one thirty-four. It looked like it was going to overtime against Cal. You're a Jose Cortez field goal away from being bowl eligible. Mm-hmm. Fumbled late. Cost you the chance to win that, the Washington game. So there's three games right there. You were close. Dennis turned it with the 7-4 and four season and then the bowl loss yeah. in 99. But in 98, that team was very close to three more wins. Let's sneak Dan yeah. Beaverton in in these final three minutes. Dan, thank you for the call on the Downward Dog phone line. Welcome to the Joe Beaver Show. Thanks, Mike. I want to take a different spin on this. It's not, I don't want to bring up UCLA. I want to bring up Chip. Kelly. Mm-hmm. I will never forget the game in Austin where Sean Canfield was our quarterback. We had that game won and they're going to the Rose Bowl. And Legarrett uh, Blunt, who was suspended for the entire year, comes off the bench and led them to the come. I, I've hated him ever since. And I hope uh, Beaver fans remember that. And as much as we despise UCLA, uh, we can give. Uh, Kelly, the uh, warning, <laughs> warning he truly deserves. Okay. Dan, the only the only thing I'll take exception with you, not so much on the plane of Blunt. I know that that was a surprise to multitudes and you know maybe not to them. They knew what they were going to do. And Laguerre did have an impact on the game. I will dispute the notion that the Beavers had the game won until Blunt came in. The Beavers did lead 30-21. to 21. Yes. I, I remember Third it. quarter. And, and I remember... But 30-21 to 21 isn't quite having the game won in the third quarter. I, do you, not with Oregon. No, and not with anybody, Jeff really. Mayle had a, some big plays. Yeah, but. I mean, that, that, that game that game is one of the painful ones of all time, while at the same time one of the great college football games I've ever seen, too. But it still hurts to think about it. And I don't blame you for being upset with Chip for, for pulling the LeGarrett Blunt lever when he supposedly was done. Everybody was mad yeah. about that. Yeah, you're right about that, Dan. Any 
But you understand what I mean? I never, Jim and I were not oh, in the I, boat feeling like the game was well in hand at any point. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. Momentum started to change, but that just seemed to push us over the yeah, edge and yeah. almost made it a personal yeah. type of thing. I got you. Uh, yeah, last thing I want to mention is that the UCLA games. When I was like nine or ten years old, my father would take me to the games with Freddie Boyd and mm-hmm. Billy Nickelberry. Um, Trying to Gary Arbel beating. Yes, uh, our center was a tall, thin guy. I can't remember his name, but uh, uh, John Wooden would come in with Lou Alcindor and John Vallely would shoot from the side, and it was just an incredible event. And of course, we never beat UCLA, but Freddie Boyd was an incredible. He was the star of the team. There's no doubt about it. We're uh, going to try to, we'll do our best to, to get people who played with and knew Gary Arbelbeady, in fact, is one that, and Andy McClowski, who coached with him at Oregon State and idolized Freddie as Andy was growing up. Dan, we're going we're gonna to try to get some people on to pay tribute to the great Freddie Boyd. Thank you for the call today, Dan. We appreciate it. We are down to uh, our last few seconds today. Tomorrow, I know Nigel Burton will be joining us to talk about the matchup, about the league We'll also be visiting with Todd Campbell about uh, the OSU Alumni Association and various activities going on yep, therein. It's homecoming this and, week. And we will be at the men's basketball practice tomorrow in the basketball uh, center on campus, taking a look at Gavin Mars and company. Our thanks to Tim, to Gavin, uh, to Jim Wilson for joining us. We'll talk to you tomorrow from the practice center as we get ready for the Beavers in UCLA on Joe Radio.